Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 75. Uh, today's episode is going to encompass furniture making in the uh, colony of Massachusetts in the 18th century. The furniture craftsmen of colonial Massachusetts have left a remarkable legacy. Thousands of examples of their work survive, serving as sources of enjoyment for collectors and curators alike. Yet those objects also offer intriguing challenges. Since few are signed by their makers, it is often difficult to link a particular artisan to a specific item. The process can be a slow, meandering one, as the researcher collects evidence and, like a detective, assembles a compelling case of circumstantial proof to who possibly have, may have made it. So the name of the artisan behind the first group that we're going to talk about remains a mystery, although his furniture is readily identifiable. The largest cache resides at the Spooner House in Plymouth, Mass., acquired by the merchant Ephraim Spooner, 1735, upon his marriage to Elizabeth Surtiff. The house and its contents descended through the family for more than two centuries, and today, administered by the Plymouth Antiquarian Society, is the only 18th century structure in southeastern Massachusetts retaining most of its original early furnishings. Although incomplete, Spooner's estate inventory portrays a well-furnished household, with objects ranging from, ranging from a, a, case, a case drawers valued at only $1 to a looking glass quite large, appraised at $11. The majority of the furnishings have modest values, suggesting they were older items, perhaps acquired during the decade after the Spooners were married. Five of these, a dressing table, drop leaf table, desk, blanket chest, and bottle box, are attributed to a single cabinet maker, and they provide a framework for identifying his work. The dressing table, likely the dress table, valued at a mere $2 in his inventory, follows Boston fashion in its basic outline. Cabriole legs, cup-shaped round feet, an undulating skirt, punctuated by turned pendant drops. Yet closer inspection discloses several distinctive features. The skirt outline is surprisingly busy and the original acorn-shaped drops are unusually small. The legs are slightly stiffer and the ankles thicker in many New England, as opposed to many New England cabrioles. A crease runs across the outer edge of the knees. In addition, the drawers are aligned in a single tier rather than the customary two-tier arrangement on cabriole-legged examples. And the tabletop is bordered by quite a distinctive molding. The drawer uh, construction is proficient, but not exceptional. Broad dovetails, blind dovetails in the corner, and the bottom slides into grooves in the sides and front. The maker marked the back of each drawer with chalk with a number and a V, which serves as the virtual fingerprint of his hand. His drop-leaf dining table is a classic mid-18th century New England-type example with cabriole legs, pad feet, shaped end rails, and rounded leaves. 
Looking carefully, however, one finds that the angular legs match those on the dressing table and that the scalloping at the end rails resembles the skirt of the table. When constructing the dining table, the maker took several steps to reduce the final cost. He carved a vertical bead on the outer edge of each knee rather than apply a separate knee bracket. He mixed the primary woods, choosing costly Caribbean mahogany only for the top of the knees and the native maple for the legs and end rails, which he stained to match the mahogany. Four other tables, two of which descended in Plymouth families, nearly matched the spooned table. The desk resembles many Eastern Massachusetts models in its overall design and interior layout. Yet the two spooner tables, <clears throat> it varies in subtle ways from its urban counterparts, including the shapes of the turn pilasters of the interior and of the vertical partitions between the pigeonholes. For the valances of the pigeonholes, the maker repeated in small scale and shape at the end rails of the dining table. He trimmed the cost of the table by limiting the use of imported black walnut to the facade and substituting less expensive native maple for the sides. He also eliminated carved details, such as the fan-like shells that often decorate small drawers in Boston desk interiors. Finally, rather than bind the front bracket feet with a typical miter joint, he fastened them with a rabbit joint by cutting a notch in each front-facing of each foot and butting it against each other to the side, a technique common on blanket chests. Indeed, he used it on the two blanket chests, one of the Spooner House and the other, in far better condition, in the Alden House in Duxbury, just north of Plymouth. Perhaps the rarest survival from the Spooner House is a bottle box, with partitions for a dozen bottles. Though European examples of the form, usually re <clears throat> replete with liquor bottles, reached American ports during the 18th century, few versions made in New England are known. This example in black walnut, dovetailed at the corners and standing on bracket feet, is surprisingly stylish. It presumably once stood in the parlor or perhaps even the parlor closet. The estate inventory of a Plymouth neighbor, William Weston recorded one case and six empty bottles in a parlor closet in 1815. The feet of the Spooner box have been reduced in height, though. Yet enough of the feet and central drop survive to indicate they are, that they conform with one another, but on a smaller scale to similar details than that of the desk. Furthermore, the profile of the molded edge on the top corresponds to that along the top edge of the dressing table involved. No furniture by other Massachusetts cabinet makers displays these similar functions. All the Spooner furniture was undoubtedly made by the same craftsman, but who was he? So at the same time that the Spooners brought their furniture, a handful of artisans practiced their trade in the Plymouth area. The best known is Ebenezer Robbins, whom period accounts consistently identify as a chairmaker. Between 1771 and 1785, Robin sold at least six dozen chairs to Spooner for shipment as venture cargo 
on coastal schooners. The same records refer to the two obscure Plymouth craftsmen, Ebenezer's brother, Rufus Robbins, and James Sutcliffe. Both men provided desks for export on one of the Spooner's vessels. It is tempting to attribute the Spooner case furniture and its relations to Rufus Robbins or Sutcliffe, who was the first, as a matter of fact, of the half-brothers of one of Spooner's wives. However, little hard evidence has been discovered to support this theory. It is hoped that the furniture that we're talking about will bring light additional pieces, as well as clues that will confirm the name of the maker. So it still remains a mystery, though. The identity of another Plymouth County craftsman has proved almost as elusive. His story begins with a high chest discovered by the author's of Harbor and Home, um, which was nearing its publication. At first glance, no student of early American furniture would associate this chest with southeastern Massachusetts. The steeply pitched pediment, inlaid folio in the center of the pediment, stop fluted pilasters, and the upper case and fluted plinths all relate to the furniture designs of New London County, Connecticut. The shape of the legs, profile of the skirt, and fan-like carved shells correspond much more closely to Boston and the northern shore work than to that of the coastal Connecticut area. And still other details defy any regional attributions. The particular turn brass bases supporting the brass clock finials, rather than the standard urn and flame wooden ones, and the unusual construction behind the scrolled pediment rather than a closed bonnet. Had it not been for the history of the distinctive high chest, we may have well overlooked it. It belonged to Caleb William Prudy, a prominent and 19th century merchant of Squinter, Massachusetts, and probably stood in his grandfather's house in that town for many, many years. The history spurred a search for these related examples to that. We found another chest from the shop that descended in a Marshfield, Massachusetts family, and a desk and a bookcase by the maker that was acquired by a Hanover, Massachusetts doctor before 1900. All three towns, Cyclic, Marshfield, and Hanover, about one and another, suggesting that a single craftsman in the area made all of these objects himself. In Harbor and Home, we ended the story of these particular case pieces by simply identifying their connection to the region. But recent study of several clock cases from Plymouth County extends our understanding of the group. All the pieces can now be ascribed to the cabinet maker, Elijah Cushling Jr. of Hingham, a prosperous community uh, just, just south of Hanover. Uh, the attribution to Cushing's is based on two major factors here. The presence of the same idiosyncratic design and construction elements in the case furniture and several of the clocks, and the relationship between these clocks and a group of later federal clock cases made by Cushing's son Theodore. Analysis of all these clock cases and the works within them documents the which are the connective threads that tie the entire group together. Like the 
pouty high chest, one of the clocks was initially attributed to the coastal Connecticut because of the inlaid type star and steeply curved pediment. Indeed, the pediments on the chest and the clocks are nearly identical, and the shape of the cornice moldings is the same. A carved sunburst with a central button decorates each rosette, and fluted pilasters are set just below the cornice. Such consistencies point to a single craftsman in a certain regional area. The works of the clocks can be attributed to John Bailey, the second of Hanover, the most significant clockmaker in southeastern Massachusetts at the end of the 18th century. His hand is visible in the pierced pattern of the skeletonized brass plates within the works. Since brass was costly, Bailey cut away any extraneous metal that he could use for another movement. The plain geometric white dial from Boston was at the height of fashion in the 1790s, as were the neoclassical urn-shaped wooden finials. The case, however, is far from fashionable. The arched hood door, scrolled pediment, squat base, and bracket feet were seen on clock cases from Boston and Newport by 1760, though here the maker transformed the urban model into a pleasing of idiosyncrasy and form. The earliest clock case that can be ascribed to him contains wooden works and a composite brass dial. Before assembling the clock, the maker of the works used the pine backboarding of the dial to support when, <clears throat> when figuring accounts. The pressure from his writing implements telegraphed through the paper and left faint impressions on the soft wood. One inscription read, um, Hanover Clockmaker, dating the case from about 1780, which later than its design would suggest, though. Interesting. In addition, the indented signature, which was indented into the pine, is consistent with John Bailey II's handwritten signature, strengthening, strengthening the attribution of the works to him rather than that of his father, who has ex historically been credited as the maker. Two features immediately set up the early example apart from the clock discussed previously. The case never had feet, but instead rests on a bold base molding, and broad fluting extends up the ends of the waist. Both details add a dramatic overall presence. Like many of the clocks in this type of group, the cherry case is grain-painted to simulate mahogany. The next clock has an engraved sheet brass dial, the type that came into common use in the United States during the 1780s, but soon gave way to the new painted white dial. When compared to other New England clocks, the case appears to have been exceptionally short in base, but no alterations have been made to the, human, to the eye anyway, and the unusual OG feet are original. The base of the clock is taller consistently with the proportion of clocks made after 1790. Its OG bracket feet are less awkward than those of the previous example we, we spoke about, but are not as graceful as those in, in, in the other clock or in the finial clock of the group we just spoke with, which is in a private collection. It is nearly identical to the first one, but displays a better balance of the hood, waist, and base, making it the most sophisticated of this, of this small group.
and with its painted neoclassical dial, taller base, and graceful OG feet, also the latest, dating from about 1800. So if we take close inspection of the entire group of clock cases, um, this discloses an honest of peculiar uh, an honesty of peculiar features that tie them all together, particularly in their hoods. On nearly all, the maker used two boards, one at the top and the other, to construct each side of the hood, an unusual technique that is not no apparent benefit, but in addition, he consistently built a larger box for the hood and cut away the front corners to accommodate pillars instead of the more typical technique of using a wide molding at the base of the hood that allowed a space for the pillars at the front and the back. This too is a time-consuming process that has no obvious advantages and seems to be a quirk in this particular artisan. He took an equally individual approach on the pillars turning them on a lathe and then decorating them with fluting on a spiral twist. He frequently cut crescent-shaped piercings in the facade of the pediment, and, to cap the hood, he added wooden finials of various shapes, ranging from an unconventional ball and twisted flame to an urn. So in virtually every case, he covered the finials and sometimes the rosettes, in gold paint rather than more expensive gold leaf. The key to this idiosyncratic maker's identity lies in the similarities between these two latest clocks we're speaking about in the group. Examples and examples associated with the Hingham cabinet makers of Theodore Cushing. Cushing's name appears in the account book of Calvin Bailey, which is a brother of John Bailey II who, in 1806, noted that he had paid Cushing $5 for a small case clock, called dwarf clocks today. Small case clocks were half-scale versions of tall clocks and were very popular in Hanover and Hingham during the 1810s and early 1820s. Cushing and Calvin Bailey's 1806 collaboration was one of the earliest, the cabinet maker made numerous tall clock cases for Bailey as well. Both versions share many features, all unusual for eastern Massachusetts clocks. Similar heavy fretwork caps and hoods, and the dial doors have molded edges along both their inner and outer edges, and neither case was reinforced with glue blocks. Most important, the feet on both are shaped identically, though on a smaller scale, for the dwarf clock, and they are exactly like those on the otherwise very dissimilar clock that we previously have spoken about. The particular profiles of the moldings around the base, cornice, and bottom of the hood of the Cushing tall clock also match those of that last last one we just spoke about. Could the cases of the, that clock and Cushing's be by the same person, born in 1776? Theodore Cushing presumably did not begin work on his own until 1797, when he reached the age of 21. That most of the examples in this group were constructed well before that date suggests that he was not the maker. Instead, they were probably the work of the man who trained him, like his father, Elijah Cushing's Jr. Accordingly, it seems reasonable 
to attribute the traditional furniture in this group to Elijah, with his son later adopting many of the, many of the techniques and melding these with the new, more fashionable neoclassic style in the cases he made for Calvin Bailey's clockworks. Elijah Cushing's Jr. lived on Main Street in Hingham in a house built by his father. Scattered reference documents on his career as a cabinet maker, but far more needs to be learned about his activities. What influenced his work? What led him to create the steeply pitched pediments on clocks and high chest? Why did he choose to decorate several of the pediments with a, a type of fan, reminiscent of coastal Connecticut-type furniture? Did he visit the work briefly in Connecticut, or did he see a Connecticut clock or chest or you know somewhere in Higham? Who would know? Further research will study and will still yield more clues, if not definite answers to these questions um, get solved rather quickly. So my study of the work of the of these type of craftsmen explored in this podcast um, demonstrates the dangers of looking for a single regional identity in a particular area. Individual craftsmen in small communities often arrived at their own peculiar solutions for issues of design and construction. Such variety lies at the very heart of their work and instills a sense of appreciation in all of us who study it today. Uh, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, signing off. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening.